Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. I'm Jacob Kyle. My guest today is Julie Brown Yao. Julie has a PhD and has a 30-year background in psychological, somatic, and spiritual traditions, providing her with a unique depth of knowledge and direct experience. Julie's unified approach for addressing developmental and complex trauma includes the latest neuroscientific and psychosomatic findings, depth psychology, and Eastern wisdom. Julie is an author, speaker, and has a private practice in Laguna Beach, California. She has a passion for resolving trauma, reducing stress, and suffering while cultivating compassion. Julie supports those on a spiritual path to embody realizations and assists those going through spiritual emergence to create a fully embodied and rich emotional life. Julie assists individuals and groups to gain healing from ongoing repercussions of trauma and adversity while enhancing psycho-spiritual growth and the expansion of consciousness. So with that, hello, Julie. Thanks Hi. so much for joining me today. Thanks for the invitation. So I've really enjoyed, you know, getting to know you a bit through some of your media content online, watching some videos that you've published through Science and Non-Duality Conference, um, both individual talks and also conversations that you had on a variety of topics related to trauma. And uh, this is obviously an important topic for us at Embodied Philosophy because we're about to segue into a whole kind of quarter of content um, uh, on topics related to trauma and healing, um, mm -hmm. starting with an online conference here in a, in a few weeks. So I would love to kind of uh, start this conversation um, just by getting a kind of basic definition from you on what trauma is. Um, so what is trauma from your perspective, Julie? Okay, well, if we're talking at trauma in general, we imagine it to be something that is too much, something that happens that is too much, or happens too quick for our system to really be able to assimilate or integrate at the time. And so we may become emotionally overwhelmed, uh, mentally overwhelmed, physically overwhelmed, and we, we separate these different experiences or dissociate or disconnect from different experiences. Um, and we're left in some kind of state of hyperarousal or hypoarousal um, or somewhat numb. Um, so that's sort of a general definition of an acute or shock trauma. Developmental trauma is a little bit different. So developmental trauma is very similar to attachment trauma, also called early trauma or relational trauma. And this is the trauma that occurs in our developing years. Um, the same thing, something that happens that's too much, um, it happens too quick, it's very overwhelming. But it's also something that it can occur from what we're not receiving, from the environment, so not being held, that feels too much, not being attuned to, that feels too much, and we, we need to disconnect to certain degrees. Mm. So it, um, I know that you, know, you had mentioned in one of your talks that you had come to this work through your own experience of trauma, so I was wondering if you would be willing to share a little bit of your own story of how you um, sort of you know, evolved on your own path into the work that you're doing now. Mm. I would say the, the spiritual path was probably the path that took me into trauma as opposed to uh. learning, about, learning about my own trauma. Um, through developing a spiritual practice and over the years of having very, very disciplined practice, a lot of um, information comes up from your psyche, from yourself that right. needs to be faced, a lot of 
fears, a lot of crisis of meaning, if you will. And so the investigation or the internal exploration of that led me to really want to understand more about what happens to us in life and the, the ways of being that we develop due to those incidents and events that happen to us um, that create certain ways of being and can maybe block our true self or our true nature. So it was really a spiritual path of meditation that got me interested in exploring more of the, the mind, the psychological mind. Mm. Once I started to do that, I became fascinated in, in trauma and the effects of trauma. Now, did you find that the traditions that you were involved in were receptive to this kind of exploration into trauma? Or, you know, and I ask that because, at least in my experience, oftentimes that element is a little bit left out in, you know, um, uh, situations of spiritual bypassing, which is obviously a phenomenon we're very familiar with at this point. Um, so did you find that you uh, that you encountered communities where this sort of conversation was happening, or was this something that you sort of had to spearhead on your own? You know, I was involved for many, many years in Tibetan Buddhism, and uh. I don't feel that I um, met any spiritual bypassing that I was so aware of that you know, we would try and avoid any kind of discomfort or trauma that would come up. But there really, um, on the path that I was, there really wasn't any way to engage um, with any difficulties that came up. That was, I was fortunate in the sense that I had teachers that would often tell students, you know, go look for psychological support. Right. Um, another tradition that I was involved in, or I'm involved in for many years, is the path of um, Sri Divyas or an Indian tradition, and that they very much involve the body and trauma. They have very different ways of addressing it. But I work with a lot of people who go on meditation retreats or who have a spiritual practice, a meditation practice, who have some kind of emergence or memory of a trauma that happened or outbursts of anger, some, something that comes up and takes them by surprise, and they really have no way to, to deal with it. But as you say, more and more people are becoming aware of this now. I think most spiritual teachers are open to encouraging students to also seek out psychological help, mm. um, if necessary. Yeah, I mean, I think that seems refreshing what you're saying about having been involved in communities where they were encouraging you to also seek out this other channel because I think there's there are some situations and I don't know if you've if you feel this way as well where where and I and actually this came up in one of the conversations you were having um, uh, on the videos that I found on your website where the the idea is that you know your spiritual practices are sort of a heal-all right and and there's no need for those other things because as you encounter states of awakening trauma will just you know naturally resolve itself so do you have any thoughts on that myth which i i i'm assuming you think that's a myth well i think it's a possibility i, I don't know we don't know for sure right. and i and i'm you know i imagine or i assume that a lot of uh, internal difficulties may be able to dissolve in the light of awareness. Right. Will, will everything, given the days that we live in, and you know, being being in the world with all the stresses that are in the world, I I don't think so. And I know in the tradition that I was in, 
uh, our teachers would say, you know, you can dissolve all of these, what they would call karmas or imprints or samsaras and so forth. If you sit in a, an awakened state for about eight years, 24 seven. So really how many of us are experiencing that state you know, 24 hours a day and allowing all the content, content of our mind and psyche to dissolve. Yeah, I'm lucky if I've got one second in eight years. <laughs> I, I think it's really important, you know, if people are interested in spirituality to explore both because they, they're so intimately interconnected that different approaches to really, you know, exploring and maybe finding our true nature or our essential self, our awakened self, whatever language we want to use, they, they cross paths in so many different ways. Yeah, I really appreciated that. Um, that was something that came up as well, is that you encourage both the, the psychodynamic and also the body-centered uh, um, focus. And I, I wanted to touch on that a little bit because, you know, you your approach is to focus on the body. And at one level, you know, that seems to me like that should be the only way to go. <laughs> um, but I take it that since you distinguish yourself in that in that way, that this is not always... Um, our approach to trauma. So what is um, what is sort of one of the alternative approaches to trauma that's sort of in the, you know, in the landscape, so to speak? And, and why is your approach um, to the body uh, from your perspective so important? Well, I think all the research that we have today points to trauma being embedded in the body. So yeah. I, I don't only focus on the body. I, I focus on the body, on the mind, on the intellect, on imagination and spiritual practice, I really encompass a lot of different avenues. So it's a, it's a really whole body, whole brain approach to, to addressing trauma, because every individual is different. And sometimes for individuals to just begin to work with the body is too much. Some people have disconnected or dissociated from the body that focusing on the body initially just really isn't an option. Yeah. But the idea is to begin to allow the body to feel like a very safe and comfortable place to be connected to and to indwell. And then the body sensations, our emotions, and feelings that all live in the body become come forward more and are easier to, to address. Mm. So I don't, I certainly don't just work with the body. Right. Um, so what is then, you know, another approach that like from your perspective this sounds like it's more of a holistic it's a more integrated kind of perspective is there an approach to trauma that's that's some that's sometimes taking place that in your view is not as holistic as this as this approach no i i don't know i'm sure there are some folks who are maybe not so holistic um, I'm not aware of them right now. I think as we learn more, as the different disciplines, you know, the neurosciences, the psychologies, the um, spiritual communities are coming together, we're realizing that we really do need an integrative approach, that we can't just work on one avenue of our humanity or one dimension of our humanity. We, we really need to include the whole being. Yeah. So, you know, you've talked a little bit about the developmental trauma and also the kind of shock trauma, mm -hmm. um, but you also, you know, did a talk recently about the trauma that 
um, doesn't happen to us or, you know, doesn't, um, that we don't experience directly. So can you talk about what kind of trauma that is and, um, and how that sort of manifests in our own experience of embodiment? I think what you may be talking about is when I was mentioning the trauma that happens to us from what we don't receive. Right. What doesn't happen to us. Yes, right. That's a better the way, way of talking yeah. about developmental trauma. M many people will know a trauma is going to occur if we are likely to occur because trauma is not always an event. I want to say that trauma is really our response to an event. Right. So just because a traumatic event happens, not everybody's going to actually come away traumatized from it. Right. So a lot of variables in that, our history, who was there, our nervous system, and so forth. But when we're children, we have these essential needs. And if our essential needs are not getting met, so if they're not happening to us or we're not receiving them, we can perceive that as a life threat. Mm -hmm. And whenever a child or an infant is perceiving some sort of a threat, we, we think of that as, as trauma. Um, and their body responds and there's consequences, there's an impact towards that. So some of those essential needs are to be held. Right? We know we need to be held when we're infants. We know we need to be the right kind of nourishment, love, attunement, mirroring. It's really important that we're listened to, that we feel heard, that we feel seen. So all of those elements. So we, we come into the world as infants really dependent on others. And we have these systems within us um, that really draw us to connect to other beings. And so one of my passions is really about very early trauma when that connection and those essential needs are not being met because there's a lot of different information um, being given from uh, maybe psychologists who are understanding developmental trauma that is a little bit different from um, some pedi pediatricians who are giving a different form of information. And uh, for instance, this was just a couple of years ago, um, a very well-known pediatrician organization is encouraging parents to put their babies into a room on their own to sleep when they're eight weeks old. So that's very, very young. And they literally said, no matter what you hear in that room, don't go in the room for 12 hours. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. And when, you know, within a few days, your baby will be sleeping through the night. So they were talking to parents who really need a full night's sleep. And of course, today, maybe both parents need to work. There's a lot of understanding around that that we have or, but we really have to take into consideration what is happening to this tiny organism when it's left alone in a room and it starts to cry. So if I, I, can, I can go through that a little bit. Yeah, please um, do. Yeah, a lot of people maybe don't really understand. And I think it's about education and understanding that can help us um, prevent this kind of trauma from happening and also help people to seek out because we can heal from this you know, in our 20s all the way up, you know, our, our whole life. So when we're born, we have what we call the natural seeking system. And that seeking system, you know, when, when we bring the, the infant from the mother, if we put the infant on the chest, 
it's going to naturally go to the breast and latch on and start nursing. If that's possible, obviously it's not always possible for a mother to nurse, but that connection is so important in what we call a care system would come up and that care system floods the mother, it's flooding the baby with oxygen, which is this wonderful bonding hormone that really is connecting this mother and infant with this sense of joy. Mm. Now, another thing that's really important to understand is the first year postpartum or the first year of the baby's life, the, the self-soothing system isn't fully online. So a baby can't self-soothe. It needs the, the caring um, system of the mother or the mother functioning figure to be able to teach the baby, if it goes into distress, to calm down. So that's really important. So if we're putting our babies away from us and not picking them up when they go into distress, it becomes even more distressing for an infant. So yeah. let's say the baby's not with the mother, uh, or a caring other, they'll go into distress into what's called a grief system and start crying out. Right? There's a, a sense of feeling very lonely, um, very sad, and they're crying. And the crying is to alert the caregiver to actually cause distress in the caregiver to come and pick the baby up. Right, And then uh, parent and child are back in union, they calm down and everything is okay. But if you're not going to seek out the child when it's crying, then it goes into higher and higher states of distress. And it'll reach a state of distress where rage will kick in. Mm. And this rage is about connection. Please come back and connect with me because I'm beginning to feel a life threat. Obviously, that's not what the baby's thinking. This is a, a, an experience of this tiny organism. And that high arousal gets so, so intense for the infant that at some point the infant will shut down and disconnect or dissociate. That rage gets disconnected and then we disconnect from, from the body. Now that can happen once or twice and maybe we can repair that, bring the baby back to us and everything is okay. But if that's happening over and over again, that disconnection um, and numbness from the body can, can last a lifetime and can cause serious ramifications. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of remarkable how <clears throat> much kind of knowledge around this is emerging because it, 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 isn't it true that this is sort of relatively new, this understanding? And and I, I, I was thinking about this because you had mentioned in one of your talks that I think I'm getting this fact right, so correct me if I'm wrong, but that babies before 1988, for example, were not given anesthesia because they were considered bundles of flesh without consciousness yeah, yeah. Um, which uh, is horrifying in his book and he, yeah 1988 the, I think it was the um, American Association said medical association said uh, yeah prior to that babies didn't weren't numbed if they were having surgery so they they went to sleep but they they weren't numb so they could feel oh uh, anything happening to them so that's relatively recent because there was a sense that babies couldn't remember and therefore they, that, that they wouldn't feel that they were bundles of nerves but they really weren't feeling any pain wow wow well i was a baby before 1988 so <laughs> yeah. who knows and i was in the hospital a lot so that's that's an interesting thing to to think about mm -hmm. um you know so uh, 
talking about um, developmental, I, I think when I was asking the question before about um, things not received, I think I was confusing that with another um, um, idea, which is this idea of generational trauma. And you've done a really beautiful job at kind of explaining and outlining the ways in which that process of um, of traumatization and developmental stages occurs. So I'm curious because generational trauma, I think to a lot of people who don't understand it or don't haven't heard about it, it sounds sort of magical. Like how could I inherit that? You know, I, and, and so can you talk a little bit of the science of that and how that process takes place? And then also, you know, there seems to be, maybe this is a follow-up question, which is just that how do we begin to discern or is it even important to discern between um, the kind of trauma that takes place at develop, early developmental stages versus trauma that I'm actually is actually coming from before that is coming from my family or from you know uh, generations prior to my own this incarnation um, um, and whatnot. So so yeah, that initial question of of what is generational trauma? How does that function? How does that work? And mm -hmm. then how do we begin to discern? And is it important to discern between that and and trauma that originates in this sort of experience of embodiment? I think it can be important to discern, and there's very, uh, there's different practitioners that are working specifically with intergenerational trauma and others developmental trauma or shock trauma. And I think it's good to have information about all of that. I am, um, so there's a lot of research and uh, scientific understanding that that's coming forward, letting us know that trauma can be transmitted through gene expression from our DNA from generation to generation. Um, there's research that shows that trauma from a mother and father uh, will pass on, that's, that would be or show up differently. Um, and then there's always the generational trauma that passes maybe from mother and father right at the time of um, when the baby is a fetus and through the birthing process. And I, I work maybe, I, I work with all of it. I probably won't talk so much about the research of intergenerational trauma. That's not where I've, I've spent so much time. I do work with it, but I, I don't think I'll talk so much about the science of it. Sure. But what is really important to understand is if a mother's nervous system, if a mother is really traumatized and her nervous system is really upset and she's pregnant, that we know that that information is going into the, the baby's nervous system, if you will. So I have a lot of individuals that I work with who might have been born in a time of a revolution or a war or a depression, or the mother or father have just experienced a great loss and that they're really going through some kind of trauma themselves or they're dissociated or, or numbed from their body. So our baby, you know, our infant, is going to be developing in the environment of the mother or the mother functioning figure's nervous system. So that trauma can translate directly into the baby's nervous system. Mm -hmm. So I had one, I'll share a story. I had a lady whose uh, father passed away. I think she was two weeks old. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine the shock of, of the mother. Yeah. Um, and so she said, you know, I've ne when she came to see me, she said, I've never had any trauma. I've had a really pleasant life. My mother and I were very, very close, but I, I suffer from this really intense 
anxiety and I've never been able to, to figure it out or understand why. And when we realized, you know, at two weeks old, her mother was in this tremendous state of anxiety because her husband, the child's father, had just passed away in a terrible incident. You can imagine that, you know, holding that child, being held by someone who's in such a state of grief and anxiety. Yeah. So that's another way we can inherit or pass trauma on, if you will. Mm. I guess my my question when I was asking about, you know, why we might want to discern, I guess it was sort of related to this, you know, it, if in my own experience, for example, you know, for me, a lot of times in I've encountered at various points in my own contemplative practices, a feeling of density and kind of ache in my heart space, which I associate with, you know, experiences of trauma. And there, you know, at one level, there is a kind of narrativizing of that, like, where did that come from? How did that originate? But then it almost seems like in, uh, that that sort of is, is that is that narrativizing necessary for the resolution of that trauma, if the resolution involves a kind of somatic um, healing process? Um, does, does it make sense what I'm asking? Like, do we need the story in order to heal the somatic imprint of something um, like that? I, I don't believe we always do know the story, and we, we often don't have the story. Mm. Um, I think the importance is that we find resolution, and normally in resolution, we create some form of new life narrative. We might never know the exact origin of the trauma, and of course, it could be a combination of intergenerational trauma, trauma that happened to us, repetition, trauma that's happening through our lives. Um, I see many different ways of that coming about, that people will actually begin to have memories that they hadn't had before, um, that are coming forward, maybe because they feel much safer now and do remember, uh, or they remember something that feels like it might have happened to them, but they're not really sure. But at some point, they're comfortable with not really knowing because their life is transforming anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, you started, started to touch on this earlier about a kind of um, rage or anger that, that arises, um, you know, as a result of this um, essentially neglect or, or, or not receiving um, certain things that are necessary for an experience of, you know, being nourished or, f or fulfilled as a child. And so I want to go a little bit deeper into that because I know that's some, that's a topic that really interests you. And, and obviously in our culture, you know, anger is not exactly valued or it's seen as, you know, it's one of those things that like, if it exists, you have a problem, you should probably smite it out, repress it, or yeah. otherwise get rid of it. And, and I understand you to have a much more kind of um, nuanced perspective about all this. So can you talk a little bit about, a little bit more about rage and the role of rage in, you know, in the process of healing? Right, right. I think it's such an important element. It's a very tricky element to work with or, or to access. And I think we have to be really, um, careful, if you will, when we're working with anger and rage, because to transmute anger and rage, we really want to be able to experience that in our body, because this is where that transmutation or that alchemical transformation is going to take place. 
So yeah. we really want to be able to be reconnected to our body in a very strong way to be able to experience anger and rage in a safe way. So you're right, often we, are, we see anger being, you know, whipping out at people or scenarios and situations or anger turns in towards us and yeah. it shows up as self-loathing, self-criticism, self-judgment, lack of self-worth. And I think a lot of people don't recognize that as being anger that's in, in, inside of us turning against us. Mm. And a lot of people don't realize that they do have unresolved anger because we have these amazing systems within us that can suppress and repress, dis dissociate, disconnect anger from our awareness. Mm. And when that starts to come up, it can be very, very frightening to work with for, for many reasons. And I think the younger we are, maybe that we dissociate anger or rage off, the more frightening it is to actually work with because it's such a powerful force or it feels like such a powerful force. Um, so let's say an infant who disconnects rage and maybe starts to have going through a healing process or a trauma, psychotherapeutic process in their 40s. And they might say, well, I've never been angry. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm not an angry person, but all of this anger somehow begins to come up and it can be very, very, very frightening. Once we have some form of connection with our body, we can begin to feel it safely and resolve it a little bit at a time. So feeling a little bit of a, at a time. I like to think of it as, you know, repressed anger or split off anger or rage as our life force. It, it really is part of our mm -hmm. life force. And by using our life force to keep it cut off, so it becomes really um, yeah. exhausting process over time to keep that out of our system. But when we do begin to harness it, it's a very um, empowering experience because that life force, if you will, gets rewound back into our system and people begin to feel more alive. You know, they have more access to their internal power. Um, and they feel more confident in the world, more upright in the world. I think it helps us build a greater sense of self and a greater sense of agency because we're, we begin to feel more whole when we, when we gather those split off emotions back into our system. Hmm. So, you know, this all sounds really beautiful, uh, but I guess my, my, my follow-up question or what I'm wondering is, you know, for those that are, that have this experience of sort of repressed anger or rage, you know, it can bubble up, it bubbles up as, a, you know, aggression in the context of an interaction or a situation, but it might otherwise, if one sort of peers inward, it's not sort of readily available and there to be perceived. So how does one begin the process, you know, somatically of beginning to relate to that in a, in a way that's safe and, and fruitful? Mm -hmm. I think it's individual, you know, and I, I always believe if you're working with another, somebody who is um, aware of this, these underlying patterns of anger and rage um, and how volatile they can be to help you work with it. Yeah. You know? yeah. um, I think it's always safer to work with another person because there's a greater field to help contain these emotions when they do come up. And if we're working with somebody, you want to work with somebody who's really trained to, to, to be able to know 
when something too much is maybe coming up and how to work with that so the the client or the patient doesn't get overwhelmed or if they start to get overwhelmed how to calm them and to bring them back into balance um you know just to so to seek out other people who understand or or you know know what it's like to to work with rage it, it it's a really terrifying experience it can be really overwhelming so you said you know that sounded really beautiful and i it's it's beautiful in the fact that we can transform it it can be terrifying for people because yeah. it, often when we've disconnected or repressed that anger and rage it's we've done so in some form of a life threat like if someone's had to shut down or you know go into a freeze or an immobility state the rage behind that that got cut off is intense and and people can experience it as so overwhelming that they're just going to tear everybody and everything apart and just yeah. to experience that it's like a murderous rage it's it's a horrifying experience if you don't really understand the nature of it and then it can be connected to shame and badness and you know experiences like that or it's just your system begins to feel so much life threat when that kind of energy begins to emerge that it's terrifying hmm. and so we just put it down and a lot of people it takes quite some time to really access it safely and to integrate it slowly so it doesn't become overwhelming so so we can access it so we don't have to you know have it move in with hurting ourselves or we no longer have to lash out towards anyone else mm. it's never an easy thing yeah right one of the things that this all this kind of conversation always brings up for me is, you know, the way in which other cultures, specifically, you know, the Indian um, mythology and iconography hold space for the divinity of rage and anger. You know, you see, for example, in stories of the goddess Kali of, you know, this righteous rage chopping off the heads of demons. And mm -hmm. then, of course, there's the story of Virabhadra, you know, the manifestation of Shiva where he um, you know, his wife immolates herself in the fire and then, and then he goes and chops off the head, <laughs> heads of everyone involved. And, and it's this, you know, here's God, you know, so full of rage that he's chopping off everyone's heads and ends up having to apologize and put people's heads back on, you know, a little bit later. Right. <laughs> but, you know, and I always bring that when I, in conversations around this kind of thing, I like to bring that up because it shows that there are, you know, cultures in which there's a kind of archetypal space held for righteous anger or the divinity of anger you know anger actually incarnated in in gods and mm -hmm. and and so i'm wondering you know if you think we have anything like that in western culture do we have sort of healthy archetypal um you know symbols of this kind of you know healthy relationship to anger that you're talking about or do we need to kind of maybe um develop those those kind of creative touch points I, what I see more often than not is people drawing from other cultures and other traditions that contain rage. And often it comes through through imagery. So yeah. somebody, you know, somebody will spontaneously have an image of uh, um, a being like Kali or Chamunda 
these great beings and they feel like they are them and as their imagination or their imagery experiences them, it gives them a greater container to actually to be able to feel within their own body this anger and rage that starts to come up. And as they stay present with it, right, then it begins to diminish and the physiology begins to shift and the psychology begins to shift. So we, I, I see we're drawing more and more from maybe the collective unconscious or the collective consciousness of all of these other traditions that do have a space which is really a container to be able to hold anger and rage. Mm. And a lot of people use uh, the imagery that comes up would be of a wild animal. You know? So we see in nature how nature has this space for healthy aggression that is to help us to be able to express it safely. Um, like, you know, a lot of people will come up with a, an image of being a wolf and a wolf expressing healthy aggression, you know, showing its teeth, it's growling, and it's really saying back off, you know, if you don't back off, I'm gonna, as, as a wolf, I'm gonna have to attack. But just being able to use that imagery to feel that sense of anger as internal power and allow it, allow the imagery to be part of the container that allows a person to integrate that. Hmm. So, um, it, I'm wondering if, if um, you know, part of this kind of embracing culturally of of the the healthy channeling or manifestation of uh, or expression of rage and anger. It, does that, uh, you know, obviously a not healthy expression that would be, you know, going to war, <laughs> um, uh, which is obviously the, the sort of thing that we're seeing now and perhaps is a symptom of that lack of, uh, of a healthy relationship with anger. But do you think a part of it, do you think we've become too, you know, in our day-to-day -day interactions, we've become too puritanical about fierceness? Like, is there, is part of what needs to happen a kind of more comf culturally comfortable um, allowing of the fierceness of of individuals is that you know a part of it because I guess what I'm thinking is like you know un, you know unexpressed anger can manifest as a kind of lashing out in an aggressive way um, and I get the idea of appropriating that in a more sort of like enlivened life force but what is um, I don't know if I'm getting to the question. I guess, I guess my my question is really around the moralizing around rage, and if that needs to become a little bit more nuanced. Does that make sense? Um, I think our culture, or culturally, we could understand maybe the origins of rage a little better to help us in the acceptance of it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, maybe not the expression of rage. Um, the expression of rage often isn't very healthy if it's if it's out of control. Right. We want we can utilize some of those very intense emotions in a creative way. Um, you know, write great speeches and so forth from this sense of, of anger or, or rage. We want to be able to to use that energy as a, a healthy expression. But I think understanding the origins of rage as a human being how, and how it gets repressed, I think would be a really good start to help people not have such judgment about their feelings of anger and rage that might come up. 
or towards other people when they see it. And I think the more understanding and knowledge we have about it as a culture, or cultures, many cultures here, the, the more we're going to be able to, to create that space or that container to allow it to begin to heal. Mm. So you're publishing a book coming out soon from uh, New Harbinger um, on the, um, it's a trauma workbook, yes? It's, um, remind me the the title of the the workbook? It's the Body Awareness Workbook for Healing Trauma. Right. So, um, you know, you've been talking about, for example, in the, in the processing of rage, finding a kind of, you know, facilitator who, who understands how to work with that. Um, so I imagine the workbook is, is, is the facilitator, but it's also encouraging people to kind of, you know, um, find the power within themselves to engage in this process. So what is the kind of um, spirit behind the book? And, and maybe if you want to share one of the kind of practices or one of um, the elements that you, that you uh, share in that book. I guess the spirit behind the book is the recognition that not everybody is able to find a therapist to go and work with their trauma. And there's a lot of books out there on the market today about trauma, which is wonderful because I think education, understanding, knowledge is is so important. Um, But there's not so many for the layperson, if you will. A lot of books are directed more towards therapists. Yeah. And so I wanted to make something available where people, if they weren't able to get to a therapist or get to a, a therapist to incorporate somatics in the body, that they have some kind of uh, companion, if you will, to work with and maybe feel my presence in some way through working with the book to be able to address some of their, some of their trauma or to understand it. So I begin, of course, with trying to cultivate safety, which safety is always going to be the the foundational work in healing trauma. So I I go through some of the basics of how to begin to work with, with the body, or not the body, with the mind, with the imagination, but to begin to cultivate a sense of safety in our organism. And then I go sort of step by step through many different approaches or ways that we can look at acute trauma or developmental trauma. Um, so there's, there's quite a lot in there. That I could have put a whole lot more in there, but it's really something for people to educate themselves with, to understand the connection between trauma and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, So uh, there's going to be some recordings that go with it online so people can feel connected, if you will. Um, The spirit behind it is also really about people finding ways to reconnect to themselves because trauma is always about disconnection. So we connect back to ourselves so we can reconnect to others to connect to the world around us. Um, And it's... Uh, it's a book really that I, we can pick up and look through it and everybody's going to be at different stages. So yeah. you can you know, work in the beginning and then go to the end and go to the middle. There's ways to cultivate compassion. There's ways to you know, work with your imagination. There's, there's many different elements in, the, in there for you know, different individuals mm. in different, different places on their trauma path. Yeah. So um, we've been talking obviously a lot about 
um, and around this idea of of trauma and and spirituality. Um, but I'm wondering if there's any other kind of main kind of key things that you'd like the listeners to understand about that relationship. Because you know, again, going back to what we were saying at the beginning, I think oftentimes they're sort of you know not necessarily associated with one another, or or they're considered sort of you know. Um, separate spheres, um, spiritual awakening and then trauma resolution in the form of like a psychotherapeutic environment or something. So are there, are there any other kind of key sort of ideas or, or insights that you'd like to share on that intersection? I, to, just to be really aware of both. So if somebody is, has a, a dedicated spiritual practice, to just be aware that you know, our bodies are an important you know, part of our life, human life experience, and to check in that their body is part of that process, that they're maybe not using meditation or a spiritual practice to further disconnect from their emotions and feelings and body sensations. Um, the, the spiritual practice might be very, uh, very valid and very deep. So just to keep checking in that, that yeah, that emotions, that the body is incorporated in there somewhere. And if something, some deep psychological piece comes up, that they may want to check in with some other way to address that than, than meditation. Um, yeah. And the same on a path of, of trauma, because trauma is really intertwined with spirituality. I, I always think of working with trauma as a very deep spiritual path in and of itself, because we're really connecting back to ourself. We often come up to a crisis of meaning, which often spiritual paths do. We often meet this place of a void. We, we meet fear. Um, we're, we're working with this uh, subject object duality or the dissolution of that duality. Um, so I, I would also say in the path of trauma, for those who are interested and more of these deep, what we think of as spiritual insights that open up to, to check in, you know, that they are embracing some kind of spiritual path if, that, if they're so inclined as well. Not, not everybody is. Um, or we're not putting in, into the category of, of spirituality. Um, yeah. But I think they both, they both lead you know, towards the same direction, which is about this deep connection to our essence and our essential nature. And they're both, would hope both paths that can be very integrative for all of the dimensions of our being so we can experience this sense of, of wholeness and to know that we are more than the sum of our parts to maybe connect it to something greater than our individual self. And then, of course, there's always ways to then go go much further and deeper than that also. That's beautiful. Um, Julie, this has been such a lovely conversation, and we're sort of nearing the end of our time. But I was wondering, just to go back to your book, um, if there was perhaps maybe a tool or a technique that you would be interested in sharing with the listeners that could give them a little bit of a taste of of what's in store for them when they um, when they go and buy your book? Okay, so what's coming to mind straight away because I think compassion is such a um, 
a, a large element or a huge element in both trauma and spirituality. Of course. There's um, a couple of different practices in there that will help one cultivate compassion. There's one, uh, I think it's really lovely visualization where we're visualizing a compassionate being and, and using that imagery to help evoke that quality of compassion in our own, in our own body. And we use this both in psychology, you see visualization and imagery used to cultivate qualities and we do also in many of the wisdom traditions. So there's some exercises like that in that. Um, that's one little taste. There's, there's many body-oriented um, exercises, but there's also exercises for those individuals who aren't yet really connected to the body that can help them become connected to mm. their body. Mm. Um, and, and at the end of the book, there's one of my favorite practices uh, called Lassia Tandava. And I'm drawing from that practice where we use music in very, very slow movement where we connect to the subtle energies of the body to help the body move as an integrative practice for all of the work that um, the person might have been doing. Beautiful. So Julie, um, as we uh, close our chat, I'm wondering, do you have any sort of further um, thoughts or reflections or anything you'd like to share? And then I would love to hear a little bit about, you know, what's coming up for you in terms of your own either programming or um, workshops, retreats, anything like that you'd want to share? Okay, thank you. Um, the, the place that I'm moving into or towards that I'd like to talk more about, because mm -hmm. I, I love to talk about um, some of the deeper experiences of, of anger and rage, you know, to really go into that a little bit more deeply so people really get a, a, a sense of understanding and the importance of safety around that, and the experiences of terror, and terror of annihilation, mm. and the existential terror that often comes out when we're wor working with really uh, with, with trauma. So I'm, I'm gonna be talking more about that, but I'm also gonna be talking about beyond trauma. So we, we uh, you know, I've been working with trauma for so long now, both individually and with other people. And there comes a point, there can come a point where we've done so much work with our trauma and resolution and integration that people move beyond trauma, which doesn't mean every piece of trauma has been resolved in our system, right. but it, we move into more of a field of, of love in connection. Mm. So that's what I'm going to move more towards to speak about beyond trauma. Um, I'm giving a talk in Italy this summer with their science and non-duality conferences called uh, Beyond Trauma, Falling Into Love, to show sometimes when we meet those most difficult core pieces of trauma, like terror and rage and annihilation, when we meet those, they can be so life-transforming and um, it's, it's like we meet these tiny deaths or big deaths, which are really moments of transformation within our own body, mind, and spirit. And we open to this field of love and the recognition that we are love. Mm, beautiful. So would you extend that um, to say that, you know, in situations where trauma is, you know, extremely active in our lives, that it's 
it's impossible impossible for us to embody or to feel love. Would you go so far as to say that, or or is it a little more um, nuanced than that? I think I think it's more nuanced in that um, trauma because trauma disconnects us. Mm -hmm. A lot of people can have a, a difficulty really feeling that they are loved. Right. A lot of what I speak to actually in my book is this cultivation of, of self-love. But when we talk about self-love, we are reiterating ego. as self, right? As yeah. opposed to, I am love. I am love. And I express love and I see you as love. And we actually are arising or emerging moment to moment in the field of love. Mm. Um, and so because of the disconnection in many ways trauma can disconnect us we can lose that capacity for that deep sense of love and even self-love which once we really deepen into that that then i am love um so i don't know if it stops us from love but the deepest it certainly can yeah it can stop us from um feeling loved from giving love in the deepest, most intimate way. We, we many people, you know, they, they block their hearts. They've had early on an experience of the loss of love from their parents or caregivers. We, we can you know, block the heart, if you will, and we keep the heart blocked, not even realizing that we do. It's this safety or protective mechanism because the pain of the loss of that love was so unbearable that there's no way we're going to expose ourselves to the potential of that loss again. And of course, that's not conscious. Yeah. But in working with many people, that's this underlying mechanism that prevents them from that deep intimacy of love within themselves and love of another. So I'd like to, I'm going to talk more about that as opposed to the, the devastation and the despair of trauma. So, so maybe, maybe both. Yeah, well, I love that. It's such a, it's, it's a beautiful, it's a lovely note to end on love. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and, 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 uh, you know, a beautiful kind of end to the story, right? We all want to end sort of, um, or resolve ourselves to a place where we can embody and feel love and be able to overflow with that love as well. Um, so Julie, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. And um, I want to direct people to your website for more information. And that's at juliebrownyao.com, correct? And, um, and there's a number of videos there. You're very active in the science and non-duality community. So there's a number of videos from um, <clears throat> recent conferences that you can you know, sink your teeth into, um, those of you who want to learn more from Julie. And, and also check Julie out at the is this the, is it the Ita Italy um, retreat for, for sand that's happening? Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Amazing. Yeah. And then any other uh, workshops or trainings or anything else that you're participating in coming up you want to share? Yeah, I'm going to do a couple of online webinars that will go with my book. So that'll be later in the year. They're going to get posted um, on my website. And so there'll be some more talks coming up. And that will be posted on my website in the next few months. So. Okay, Thanks excellent. So for asking, and it's really been a pleasure talking to you too, Jacob. All right.